0: Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14 is our passage this morning. The title of the message is God's provision for holy living. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and read beginning in verse 11 of Titus chapter 2 all the way down through verse 15. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says this, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. for his own possession zealous for good deeds these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority let no one disregard you let's pray again father we come before you as we look at this passage and we ask that you would help our hearts and minds to focus on your truth that we might learn more about you and your goodness that this would be a way that not only we would grow in your grace and knowledge, the knowledge of you, but also, Lord, that you would be magnified in our lives. We worship you. We come together at this time right now to give honor to your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage, Titus 2, 11 through 14, is a passage that has become one of my favorite passages. It's one that has helped me in the motivation that is necessary in the Christian life to pursue holiness. And uh, this passage actually was highlighted for me and emphasized for me uh, in the mid-1990s in a period of over two or three years, but really uh, it was because of a, a couple of books that I read. Uh, And uh, those books were written by Jerry Bridges. And what I learned from him is something that he sort of discovered over a period of about 15 years. He, in the late 1970s, it was in um, 1978 that Jerry Bridges wrote a book entitled The Pursuit of Holiness. And in this book, uh, it became a very popular book in the 70s and 80s. In 1979, only a year after it had been published, it was in its third printing. And uh, people were just wild about this book. It actually sparked a whole movement of books on spiritual disciplines, subjects like uh, personal devotions, Bible study, prayer, obedient living, serving others, scripture memory, evangelism. And the title of Jerry Bridges' book communicates to you that you cannot grow in holiness unless you do something wholeheartedly. It can't be a half-hearted Action. You need to pursue it. Pursue holiness. And passages highlighted in the book are passages like Hebrews twelve, verse fourteen, which says, Make every effort to be holy or sanctified. Philippians three, fourteen, press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Or the command that we find in Romans six, verse twelve, which says. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Commenting on that passage from Romans 6.12 in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, Jerry Bridges said, quote, The experience of holiness is not a gift that we receive like justification, but something which we are clearly exhorted to work at. And while it's true that God expects His followers to make every effort to pursue holiness, I believe there's a danger in overemphasizing the human effort required for the pursuit of holiness. Because that focus on the effort and the spiritual disciplines sometimes leads to legalism, whereby you add something to Scripture and put it on the same level of Scripture, but it's not taught in Scripture. Whereby you measure someone's spirituality by what they do externally. Shortly after the book was published, it seems that Jerry Bridges also recognized the danger. Because when you overemphasize our responsibility... There's a tendency to measure your spiritual growth and the growth of others, not by a genuine deepening relationship with Jesus Christ, but by the number of or the duration of your spiritual disciplines. So legalists tend to say things like, did you have your devotions this morning? How long did you read for? How long did you spend in prayer this morning? How many people have you witnessed to recently? And there's that convicting, you know, oh, I need to do that. But, but there, there also can be this pride that wells up in those who say, well, <laughs> so it was uh, 30 minutes, 15 minutes, and five people. That's, uh, that was just in the past 24 hours. Uh, does that pass your test? And as though those, those external activities somehow measure what's really going on in your heart. Not that those are bad things. I want to make it clear. I'm not against witnessing to people. I think it's good that you read your Bible and you should pray. But we are against legalism. And we know that Bridges recognized the tension of external performance as opposed to relying on the grace of God. Because about a year after he wrote the book Pursuit of Holiness, he was asked to give a series of 10 lectures on the book. And one of the lectures was entitled, The Chapter I Wish I Had Written. And that lecture focused on learning to live by grace and not by performance. Learning to live by grace and not by performance. The problem was, is that that idea so captivated his idea that he came out with another book. And he wrote a book called Transforming Grace, where he talked about the beauty of grace and all that it does and how God sees you through his grace and how grace is unmerited favor and you don't deserve it and and that your sins are all forgiven no matter what you do. And some of his listeners who had read his first book, read his second book and thought to himself, one of them actually said, how could the same author have written both books? And so it was in 1994 that he decided to write another book where he took the idea of grace and the idea of holiness, and he put the two ideas together, and he wrote a book called "The Discipline of Grace: The Discipline of Grace." And a key chapter in that book focused on Titus 2:11 through14, our text. Because understanding grace better can free you from the entrapment of legalism, it can free believers from legalism. At the other end of the spectrum. There are those who are so opposed to legalism that they take grace and they cheapen it and swing the pendulum far in the other direction and they they experience and they practice what is called libertinism. Libertinism is, is where, well, God's forgiven me of everything, so sin doesn't really matter. So I'm going to let sin reign in my life. I'm not going to try and mortify sin. I'm not going to try and kill sin. I'm just going to accept the fact that I do sin. and there. It, so I'll just live with it. I'm still a Christian. I'm going to heaven. But the dealing with sin is not important. And that's known as cheap grace or libertinism. And we want to avoid both of those extremes. We want to stay far away from legalism and we want to be stay far away from the equally sinful attitude of libertinism. And we as Christians can easily fall into those two traps. But when we come to this passage, Titus two, verses eleven through fourteen, what we find here are Three realities about the grace of God that should help you to understand the right relationship between grace and holy living. Three realities that should help you to avoid both legalism and libertinism. The first reality in our passage is a past reality. And just to give you a little heads up, we're going to look at a past reality, a present reality, and a future reality. But the past reality is found in verse 11, and that is that God's grace has saved us. That is the past reality, and it's written in the past tense. If you look at verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. There's a small three-letter word at the very beginning that's important for us. It's the word for. It's significant for our study because it points back to the first 10 verses of Titus chapter 2. There are a number of characteristics that are listed as requirements for Christians. Older men are to be sober in verses 1 and 2, dignified, discerning, and sound. Older women, verses 3 and 4 of Titus chapter 2, are to be reverent, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Christian young women, specifically in this passage, speaking to married young women, verses 4 and 5, are to be husband lovers, child lovers, self-controlled, pure, homemakers. They should be kind and submissive. Christian young men, verses 6 through 8, are to be sensible and examples in their doctrine, in their actions, in their speech, in their lifestyles, to the extent that nobody can have anything evil to say about these Christian young men. Even slaves, verses 9 and 10, should be characterized by submissiveness, excellence, respect, honesty, loyalty. So in short, God wants you to be sensible, godly, humble, and holy. Sensible, godly, humble, and holy. And if you're writing those four things down, that's fine. But you can add them to a list of 47 million other things you're supposed to be. Don't fall in the trap is, of, okay, this is what I need to be and I'll just do that. The real question is, how do I do that? How do I do that? How, what will motivate me to actually be what God wants me to be? First of all, you have to realize that it is impossible to be holy if you are not saved. If you have not repented of your sins and turned and trusted in Christ and his righteousness, you cannot be holy. When you think about holiness or sanctification, imagine you have two people. You have um, Bob and Alan. And, and, and Alan here is, uh, they, they both hear the gospel on the same day. They both pray and say, uh, they both profess faith. We believe we're Christians now. They both say they repent of their sins. But let's say that Bob is not sincere. Bob is just uh, um, uh, Bob is just making a profession, but it's not genuine. He's just doing it because... He likes the idea, and he, there's some other girl that he likes, and he thinks she'll like him if he feigns that he is now following Christ because she follows Christ. And so you got Bob and Alan, and they live their lives. And um, Alan's a genuine Christian, but he has highs and lows and highs and lows. And one day he has a real low. I mean, just in his spiritual life, things aren't going well. Bob um, has highs and lows and highs and lows as he tries to... You know, he reads his Bible, does these external things. and At one stage, he memorizes the whole book of First uh, John and uh so on that day you're looking at alan who's or bob bob's up here bob's not a christian and you're saying wow from an external he's doing really well bob you just failed miserably you're stuck in sin you're struggling but what you'll see is that throughout his life because alan who is a genuine christian is because it's three steps forward two steps back but over time uh Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will continue to perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. And so though he has low points, the trajectory of his life is growth. He's growing. Whereas Bob is up and down externally, but he's flatlining. And so one day when they both die, let's say they both die on the same day in 2061. just for It's an imaginary story. But anyways, uh, uh, Alan goes straight to heaven and is perfect. Bob goes straight to hell and is condemned. Why? Because Bob was only externally claiming to be a Christian. And though from that external viewpoint you looked at these guys and you say, Wow, on this day one was doing way better than the other. In their heart there was something completely different going on. And so you must have genuinely repented of your sins and trusted in Christ. There must be a transformation that takes place because Christian behavior is really grounded in the work that Christ does but it is motivated by understanding the work that Christ does and applying the teaching or the doctrine of Christ and at the top of that list for motivating you and the doctrine that is at the top of the list is the doctrine of salvation. That Christ died for you. That you can't be good enough to go to heaven. Every other religion on this earth has a system of works whereby somehow you can be good enough to go to heaven. Somehow you can do something or knock on enough doors or do something that, that says you're good enough to make it in. But Christianity says you can't be good enough. The Bible teaches that there is only one who is good. And that's God alone. And Christ came down as God in the flesh and lived a perfect life. And he never sinned. And the Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. Therefore, Christ never sinned, so he never deserved to die. You and I deserve to die, but Christ allowed himself to be crucified as a sacrifice as a substitute for those who would repent and turn and follow him so that those who are his followers of Christ who've truly repented and follow him as lord and master when god looks at you and he sees your life he doesn't see your life because according to romans 4 your sin has been taken out of your account and placed into Christ's account, where he pays for it fully on the cross. And Christ's righteousness is taken out of his account and placed into your account, so that when God looks at your life, he says, Holy, another life just like my son's, righteous. Because you have been cleansed, you have been washed, you have experienced the grace of God that has appeared, bringing salvation. To all men according to Titus 2.11. Grace by definition is undeserved, unmerited, undeserved favor. William Hendrickson has defined grace as this. It's God's active favor bestowing the greatest gift upon those who have deserved the greatest punishment. When did grace appear? With Christ in the past. This is Past tense. The context of Titus 2, 1 through 11. Helps us to understand what Paul means when he says it has appeared to all men. Because we look at that and we say, well how have all men experienced the grace of God? How has salvation appeared to all men? Well verses 1 through 10 give us a good idea because it's not just. Men, it's all people. It's not just old men, but young men, young women, older women. Not many wealthy people, not not merely wealthy people, but slaves as well. Servants, not only educated, but uneducated. We, We know that all men cannot mean every individual on the face of the earth when it comes to salvation. Because the Bible clearly teaches that those who do not repent of their sins will have to pay for their sins by spending eternity in hell. That's the bad news. The bad news is that all sinners deserve to be punished by a holy God who will not tolerate sin, will not be in the presence of sin. But the good news is that the grace of God has appeared to all men bringing salvation. Bringing salvation to all men. So in a sense, it does affect uh, every kind of man. But there's another sense in which really salvation benefits every person on the face of the earth. Another verse that comes to mind when you think about this passage is 1 Timothy 4.10. First Timothy four ten says, For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. How can Christ be the Savior of all men, but especially those who believe? First Timothy four, verse ten seems to indicate that even unbelievers benefit from the grace of God and his salvation. There are many ways that they do. First of all, I mean, this this world is beneficial because sin is restrained by those who are shining the light of Christ. And as we see this world delve deeper and deeper into darkness, um, we also recognize that there is grace, common grace that everyone experiences because everyone is alive today. And none of us deserves to be alive. As we said before, the wages of sin is death. Jesus warned unbelievers in John eight twenty four, You shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. He also warned on another occasion, Matthew 10, verse 28, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So the place... Where all of us deserves to be. Today. Believers and unbelievers. If we want what we deserve. We deserve to be in hell. We do not deserve to live. We face many trials in our society today. We look at. COVID. And we say. Why is God allowing all these people to die from a disease like COVID? We look at events like happening in Afghanistan. And why is it that. That. Dozens of good soldiers. And. 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 And dozens and dozens of citizens who only wanted to get out of the country are being injured or killed because of, well, why does God allow that to happen? But the real question is not, why does he allow that to happen? The question is, why does he allow any of us to live? Why did he allow me to get out of bed this morning? It's grace. I don't deserve it. We say things to people like, I deserve to be treated better than this. But the truth is, we deserve much worse. That even our worst day here on earth is far better than what we deserve before a holy God. Because our sin is offensive to him. We don't recognize the stench of our own sin and how a holy God who is completely other and will not stand in the presence of sin and who has declared the wages of sin is death, even though you have sinned, even though you were born a sinner with a sinful nature, he has allowed you to live to this day. And so the grace of God has appeared. And if you have not yet repented of your sin, then I urge you this day, fall on your knees before him. Repent of your sin and turn and trust in him as Lord and master. You have no other hope without him. Those who repent of their sins and trust in him, you are free from the penalty of sin. Do you realize that? That you will never be condemned for your sins? Romans 8.1 says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which means that you will never be condemned for your sins. The film of your life has been erased. And Christ's film is being played. So that when God sees it. He sees Christ's righteousness. And therefore. All the sin you've committed in the past. Has been forgiven. Cleansed. Washed. Sin which might be going on in your life right now. Sin which maybe you've forgotten about. Or even you're trying to conceal. If you're truly a Christian. You will never be judged for that. You will never be condemned for that. You're forgiven. Sin which you have yet to commit. Sin which is in the future. Already forgiven because of his grace. Because Christ paid for your sin. And God would be unjust to have it paid for twice. And therefore you are free. You say, well what motivates me to live holy? We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. But I want you to understand the greatness of God's grace that has appeared in the past. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And for those of us who've repented, we have hope because. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But now, because of his grace, we are able to do what is pleasing to him, what is honoring to him. And those with genuine faith have salvation, have life. The grace of God says, has delivered us. Past tense. That's really the first reality we find in our passage about the grace of God. That helps us to have a right understanding of holy living. But there's a second reality in our passage. Not only that God's grace has delivered us. A past reality. But we have a present reality. And that is God's grace guides us. God's grace guides us. Take a look at verse 12. It begins with this word instructing instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That action word that it begins with, instructing us, has a subject, and the subject of that word is back in verse 11, and the subject is grace. The grace of God instructs us. Grace is your teacher Grace is not merely something you have benefited in the past, but grace presently is teaching you, is your teacher. It operates continuously in the life of those who are saved. The form of that word, which is a present active participle, remember participles from English? No, but participles are those action and descriptive words. They describe, but they're showing action, and this is the continuous form of that word. And so we have grace is teaching you. Continuously. In the present age. It's a present reality. You want to know, well, when is the present reality? When is the present age? Well, the present age is after, in verse 11, where the grace of God has appeared in in past tense. And it's before the future, in verse 13... And verse 12 at the end says it's in the present age. It's now. It's before his appearing in verse 13. It's after his coming in verse 11. It's now. Grace is here as your teacher. The word carries the idea of educator, trainer, like a coach. Even somebody who would discipline you. Grace disciplines you like a coach does, loving discipline, like a father might not kicking you out of his family, but motivating you. Like a father who would train up a child. In ancient times, Roman families who were wealthy sometimes had slaves that would walk their children to school. That would be their tutor, their trainer, their teacher. And I could have used that as a kid. Uh, some of you who have kids who walk to school probably could have, could use that today. Uh, but... Uh, uh, the, the, the grace of God and then on the way home the tutor would make sure that the boys don't stray and get lost on the way home or distracted and, and then that they would come home and he would help them with their homework and he was their instructor. And in a similar way grace teaches us, instructs us. The implication of this is, is glorious because it's not as though God just gives you a bunch of rules and says now follow them. He wants you to be holy, but he leaves an instructor with you. And your instructor's name is Grace. Grace is your teacher. Negatively, it helps you to say no to ungodliness. Worldly passions. Positively, it helps you to live, look at this, sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. You see, when God saves someone, it's not just a one-time act where he says, you're righteous, and then he leaves you. He changes your life. He gives you a new nature. He gives you his spirit, his Holy Spirit. He enables you to do things now that are righteous and godly. But you also, while you're here on this earth, will struggle against sin, which is one of the things that all Christians do. Unbelievers tend not to struggle against sin. They let sin freely reign. Believers struggle against sin. It should be a tension against sin. But he has not left you alone. He's given you his spirit, but he also has grace there to teach you. Grace means that not only in the past has he saved you from the penalty of sin, but in the present tense, it means you have the power to overcome sin in your life. In fact, in Romans 6, verse 14, it says that sin shall not have dominion over you. So that's significant because it means that if you are in Christ, if you have been regenerated and saved, there is no habitual sin that you cannot overcome. There is no life-dominating sin that you cannot have victory over. Though you will struggle against sin until you are made perfect by him on that day when you're with him, There is no life dominating sin. 1 Corinthians 6 talks about sins that used to characterize people. And such were some of you, it says. But he has forgiven you. He has changed you. You're different now. We're no longer known by our sins. That's why I find it confusing sometimes. There's a. There's a movement among some Christians to identify themselves by their sin. A popular Christian university in the Midwest hired somebody not so, a couple of years ago to be a counselor. And she identified herself as a non-practicing lesbian Christian. What is that? She said she was a celibate lesbian Christian. And somehow, the churches and that school accepted her as somebody that would be a good influence on their children to counsel them. We understand that people have sinful desires. But if I'm a Christian, I don't identify myself by my sinful desires. I don't say I'm a, I'm a, a dry alcoholic Christian. I'm identified by Christ. I no longer live, yet Christ lives in me. You don't, we identify life-dominating sins. But she later had to resign. Because about a year after they hired her, she said she's no longer celibate. If you have been saved, Romans 6.14 says, Sin shall not have dominion over you. And until you understand that there is no life-dominating sin that you cannot be free from, if you're a Christian and you feel like you're trapped by a life-dominating sin, it will be very difficult for you to get out of it. But once you understand that you can be free from it, I'm not talking about free from all sin. I'm talking about a life-dominating sin that you struggle with, you can have victory over it. You say, but how? Part of that equation is understanding grace. The past role of grace and the present role of grace as your teacher. Charles Wesley wrote the hymn "O oh, for a thousand tongues to sing," and he says he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. You say, "Well, how does this work for me practically?" I want to know the how. How can I, I mean? You're, I understand what you're saying, but practically, what does it look like? Well, let's take a look at how people deal with their sin. Legalists tend to deal with their sin. If you're a Christian, you're, you're over on the legalist side. By the way, most every Christian has a tendency to one or the other. Uh, you know, I, I met a couple once and, and I said, what's your relationship like? She says, well, my husband's legalism and I'm cheap grace. And, and that, that was kind of how they described each other. What they were trying to describe is that those were their skewed views of where they should be. And we tend to be on one side or the other. And sometimes it could change over the years. But those who are legalists, when they sin, they think the best way to correct their sin is to beat themselves over the back with a stick. They're ascetics. They're just, I shouldn't have done that. I'm terrible. I'm the worst. I'm not a good Christian. And they, they, you know, they, they beat themselves. They know it's wrong to beat a dog And that it's not an effective way to train a dog, but they think that's a good way for them. Another another tactic, and actually, thinking about it, that beating yourself is probably more common with the cheap grace people. They tend to ignore it altogether, but if they are going to deal with it, yeah, I'm bad. Legalists are also guilty of that. Another way, sometimes both legalists. Or, cheap grace people deal with their sin is spiritual pride. Yeah, I'm so righteous today. I feel so good. I'm batting a thousand on the, on the spiritual scale here. You know, I had my devotions and I've, I, I just witnessed to somebody on the way over here. I got to tell you about it. And, you know, I mean, God must be really happy with me today. You realize. That if you have truly repented of your sins and trusted in Christ as Lord, that you are his child and that he loves you as much as he loves his son and that there is nothing you can do to make him love you more. From a positional perspective, he sees you as righteous. From a practical perspective, you know that you are not righteous, that you're struggling against sin. And as a father, he will discipline you. But as a judge, he will never condemn you. As a loving father disciplines his own children, our father will discipline us, right? Hebrews chapter 12. But how does grace motivate me? Let me try to give you an illustration. It's an illustration. A number of years I lived in Central Africa and... There, there are villages in Africa that are miles away from any civilization, that are miles away, they're just dirt. They're mud huts and dirt. And let me tell you, a lot of people who live in those villages are very happy. There's great poverty, there's great suffering, there's low life expectancy, but there's a lot of joy. And you just have to see the children. They're running around in rags and no shoes. And, 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 and uh, But can you imagine being a child in a village not seeing much about any kind of other, never going out of that village. And one day the government decides to put a road right through your village because it's on the way between one place and one place, and we're going to cut right through here. So they put a nice tar road. First time you've ever seen a tar road, and you're like, wow. And other kids are out running on it. Look how fast I am and kicking balls. Look how fast the ball goes. And your parents say, don't play on the road. And you say, okay. But it's a new road. Hardly anybody's driving on it. Hardly anybody knows it. There's not many trucks in, in the country anyways. And so, but one day you're out there playing on it. You know, you shouldn't be playing on it, but you're, you're a sinner. And so you're sinning and uh, a truck is coming along that road and you've seen them before, but you don't hear this one and you don't see it. And um, your friends will all get off the road, but it's about to hit you. And let's say your neighbor comes out of his hut and sees what's going to happen and he runs across the road and he pushes you off the road and the truck hits him. And it's a made-up story, so let's just say it runs over his legs, okay? So he gets rushed to the hospital. They amputate his legs and it takes a long time for him to recover. But let me ask you something. You come home from the hospital that afternoon. Are you going to play on the road? No way. Why? Because it's fresh in your mind. He sacrificed himself for you. But let's just say that three years go by. Three years go by. You're still a kid. Other kids play on the road now. People have kind of forgotten it. And you've kind of forgotten it. People say, hey, come play on the road with us. Maybe. Just maybe would you play on the road? Yeah, you would. But if that neighbor wheels out of his hut... On his, in his wheelchair and calls out your name and says, hello, are you going to play on the road? No way. Why? Because grace is your teacher. And brother and sister, let me tell you, if you want to be motivated to overcome sin, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Jesus Christ died for you. And that should motivate you presently to live a life that denies ungodliness but rather pursues sensible living godly living, righteous living that's what our passage tells us in the present tense grace is your teacher ungodly behavior is any behavior that lacks true reverence and devotion for God worldly desires it's an interesting word that word in verse 12 Worldly desires, the word in Greek is epithumia. We get the word thermos from it or thermostat. Thermostat is that device on the engine of your car that regulates the coolant that goes in so that when it gets hot in there, it doesn't let it boil over. It adds more coolant. And the word thumos means to boil up underneath. And worldly desires are those desires that start to boil up underneath. How do you deny those? Grace grace is your teacher that teaches you to deny those boiling up desires. Lord forgive me for these. I'm, I'm going contrary to your grace. You died to save me from the penalty of these desires. Help me not to feed them. Let them not explode. Let me not sin more against you. God's grace keeps you from that, but it also motivates you to live. Look at this, verse 12 sensibly, that is having a sound mind, not distracted by this world, should characterize elders, Titus 1 8, older men, Titus 2, 2. young women, Titus 2 5. young men, Titus 2 That sensible living, righteously, faithfully obeying God's word, and godly, that close fellowship. With the Father. When can that godliness take place? When can that close fellowship take place? In the present age. Presently, now, when grace is your teacher. So, in the past, we have God's grace has saved us. In the present, God's grace guides us. There's a third reality about God's grace it's a future reality. In the future, God's grace gives us hope. Take a look at verses 13 and 14 of Titus chapter 2. Read them with me. It says, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. A future appearing. A future hope. Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Zealous for good deeds. The Apostle Paul and Titus had been through a lot together. Titus had had joined Paul after his conversion. And Titus was a Gentile who followed Paul and helped him on his journeys. Titus was with Paul in Acts 15. If you remember the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, it was the first real uh, big doctrinal issue uh, among the churches in that time. There was a teaching that some were teaching that in order to become a Christian, you need to become a Jew first. Therefore, if you wanted to become a Christian, you needed to first, and you were a Gentile, you needed to be circumcised, you needed to follow the dietary restriction, you needed to actually become a Jew first, and then you could become a Christian. And Paul goes to Jerusalem to say, this can't be. We're saved by faith alone, by grace alone. And in order... uh, To strike his point, he brings Titus. Can you imagine being Titus in a room full of guys who are debating whether or not he should be circumcised and then follow dietary restrictions? And Paul's saying, are you saying this guy's not a believer? Titus had been through difficult situations and now Paul had left Titus on the island of Crete. Cretans are, you know, lazy gluttons. Um, That's what the Bible says. Um, That's what they were known as. I'm sure if you go there today, there's some very nice people there. Hard workers, I'm sure. But he went there to help straighten out problems. Establish elders but teach them how they should live. And he reminds Titus in our passage here of the importance about the future and looking towards a future grace. Grace's role in the future and a future hope. He says, looking for the blessed hope. And the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The word that he uses for looking there carries the idea of longing for, waiting for. Today, you should be longing for a future hope that you have. And when we use that word hope, be careful you don't read back an English translation of the word hope into our New Testament. Because in, in Western culture today, the word hope is used differently than it was used in the first century. The word hope today means there may be a chance, but it's not very good. You know that. You've been to university, right? You walk in and teacher says, are you ready? Well, I hope I am. <laughs> Which means I didn't study. It means if, if, if you know, there's no assurance there. But in the New Testament, actually, this is a good study for you. You want to do a word study, do a word study on hope. And what you'll find is hope is because it's attached to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the future of Jesus Christ and what he has already accomplished. It is sure. It is secure. It is definite. It is not indefinite the way we use hope. Hebrews 6, 18 through 19 says to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. You, you see the word hope in scripture is used with surety, with assurance. We sing about this. We sing, come behold the wondrous mystery. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power, resurrected as we will be when he comes. I think that today, one of the benefits of society going downhill and drifting further away from where it should be is that it helps us to long for hope, the hope of heaven more. And it weans us from the affections of the world which try to lure us into their deceptive ways. South Africa is a country which has exceeded us in its rapid decline of immorality. It's gone from a country 40 years ago which had severe problems, racism and other problems to a country where people are longing to get out of it. Afghanistan is another country where people are longing to get out of. I was in South Africa, though, uh, last month, and there was an elder in the church that I used to pastor there. His name is Rene, and uh, Renee's in his, you know, uh, when we arrived. I wish Rene could be here to tell you the story himself today, but Rene was in his seventies, uh, and uh, he uh, he had um, uh, children and grandchildren, and uh, a beautiful wife, and a great life. But Rene was a guy who always talked about heaven. And Rene happened to come down with COVID, and Rene told people in the church, "I don't want you to pray for my healing." I want you to pray that the Lord takes me home because that is my strongest desire. And some people prayed against him. And while I was there, we got the news that Renee had died from COVID. And somebody in the church came to me and they said, I don't know how to pray for people anymore. I don't know how to pray for people how really should I pray? You know, Jesus in John 17 said, Father, he's praying to the Father before his his own cross and he says, Father, I desire that those whom you have given me be with me where I am. Charles Spurgeon comments on Jesus' prayer in John 17 and he says, Jesus prayed that those who belong to him be with him where he is. We often pray, Lord, those who belong to you, be with, may they be with us where we are. Whose prayer will win the day? Do you have a hope of heaven? Do you long for it so that it, it helps pull you away from the lure of this world which ends in destruction? Which is empty? That future hope, the future grace that is available... There's something else going on in these verses 13 and 14. Uh, Take a look at verse 13. There's something that's fascinating. I don't have time to spend a whole lot of time on it. But but verse 13 is looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. The grammar in this verse is explicitly clear that the individual who is the Savior is also the great God. Paul is identifying the deity of Christ in this verse. It is Jesus Christ who is both our great God and our Savior. Jesus is God. Of course, we know this to be true because he proclaimed to be God. in John 858, he said, "Before Abraham was, "I am taking the name of Yahweh from Exodus chapter three and, and causing those around him to pick up stones." Why? Because of the good works he did? No, because he being a man declared himself to be God. Or we have that beautiful story at the end of John's gospel in John chapter 20 where Thomas, who was, you know, not there when the ten saw Christ, the ten disciples, you know the ten, because after Christ rose from the grave, he appeared to the disciples, but Judas was long gone and we don't know where Thomas was. And so there were ten of them. And then Thomas came back after that appearing and they told him. And what did Thomas say? I will not believe unless I put my hand in his side and I will not believe I put his hand in my hand in his hand and see sealed the, sealed the nail prints. And in John chapter 20, Jesus appeared to Thomas and what does he say? He says, Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. And Thomas answered and he said, My Lord and my God. Thomas worshiped Jesus as God. Jesus is God. And if Jesus allowed himself to be worshiped as God and he wasn't God, then he's guilty of idolatry, he's a sinner, and he can't save anybody. Jesus is God. And God is able to redeem us. Verse 14. Take a look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Redemption is another part of that picture in the future, which we rejoice in now because we don't deserve to be redeemed. Redemption is a beautiful word. Again, if you allow me to use one more illustration from Central Africa. There was a time, one day I remember years ago, this is years and years ago, uh, in the the 1990s when I was started working in Africa. It was one of these days that was just Africa hot. I don't know how to describe it to you other than the fact that uh, today and yesterday are hot days here. Those are winter days in Malawi. Okay, so... so, um, there's this day where it just feels like the whole sky is just going to crack open. It's that hot. And it was one of these days. And uh, at that time, I was so thirsty. And I was near a store. And you could get Coke throughout Africa. Coca-Cola is everywhere. It's in glass bottles. And um, the great thing at that time is that it cost two kwacha for a Coke. And two kwacha for the bottle. So even if you didn't have any money, you could find two bottles. And go into any store and give them two bottles. And they would give you one bottle of Coke. And so... At one stage, I had bought these two bottles for two quacha each from this store. Uh, or two, two uh, you know, two Quatcha plus, you know, so I had the, had the redemption value. You, you you're with me, right? You, you understand this. You know, the California has redemption, right? Five cents. So, but, uh, so I go into the store and I, I, I found, I didn't have any Quatchas on me. So I, I found two bottles. I put them, they're in my vehicle. I put them on the counter. The guy gives me ice cold Coca-Cola. And I walk out to my car, and I had seen somebody open them with using the door jam of their car, where the lock is. I thought that looked a pretty good way to do it. So I didn't have a bottle opener, so I went like that. And the top of the glass bottle sheared off, and glass fell into the Coke. I was so thirsty, but I thought to myself, well, I, I don't want to drink glass shards. I, 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 I'm no doctor, but I don't think that's good for me. No, yeah. So... Uh, <laughs> So I decide to take the glass bottle I, I, I empty out all the coke onto the, floor, onto the ground, the dirt And I thought, well At least I'll get two quacha back You know They always give you two quacha You bring an empty bottle So I walk in And I set the bottle on the counter And the guy looks at me I'll never forget what he says to me He looks at me he says No redemption for you I said, excuse me No redemption for you Your bottle is broken A bottle for redemption needs to be unbroken. You cannot redeem yourself. Because your life has been broken by sin. You need a perfect life to redeem you. And that's why Christ died. And you have been redeemed by Christ. So that one day you will be with the Father. Do you not know? That to whom you present yourself as slaves to obey. You are the one. You are the one's slaves whom you obey. Whether sin leading to death. Or of obedience leading to righteousness. Christ redeemed you. Out of bondage to sin. You can stay serving sin. Or you can be redeemed. And saved. And serve Christ as your master. Master. Titus 2.14 says Christ Jesus gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed. Those lawless deed are those fleshly lusts back in verse 12. Peter talked about fleshly lusts as those that wage war against the soul. And some of you know what that means. Because you feel like you're being waged war against fleshly lusts. But this is why... You have to understand grace, the past, present, and future role of grace because that is what motivates you to fight back against that war. To purify himself, it says. To be a people zealous for good works. Created to be, created for good works, Ephesians 2.10. So, I want to wrap all this up now just asking these questions. Are you zealous for good works? Do you desire to live a life that glorifies God, that fights against sin, that mortifies sin? If you are not fervent in your denial of ungodliness and worldly desires, if you're not passionate about living sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, there's only two possibilities. Either you're not saved and your life is still in sin or you're not really understanding the grace of God and applying that to your life. Perhaps you're struggling against sin but you need help. The grace of God is your helper past, present and future It has saved you, it does guide you, and it gives you hope, a future hope to motivate you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the grace of God.